are called, but only a few are chosen. It's a calling, you know, the one you can't ignore, the one that creeps up at your door at 2 a.m. and reminds you to study for your human anatomy quiz due at 4. Welcome to Melanin Healthcare Rebranded, strategically giving you resourceful strategies to implement into your journey as a pre-med or med student. Today's episode, we feature a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Mariam Farrakhan, and she is a recent graduate from Elam, which translates to Latin American Medical School, a seven-year medical school program. It is located in Havana, Cuba. Currently, she is studying for Step One, which is a step that, which is a test that all medical students must take to enter a residency program at their medical school graduation. Today, we're going to discuss COVID nineteen and Dr. Farrakhan's experience as an African American who studied medicine abroad. Did I forget to mention that she is the granddaughter of the Most Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan? But enough of me talking, Dr. Farrakhan. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to be interviewed today welcome to the show thank you so much for having me i appreciate um the beautiful introduction that you (laughs) gave (laughs) no it was beautiful yes so i i do have to um make just a small correction in that um the name of my school is in in spanish of course it's from a um i study in a spanish-speaking country um but it's la escuela latinoamericana de medicina which translates to the latin american school of medicine but you did good (laughs) okay thank you (laughs) for that one no problem you did good i just you know i just want to just make a, a small minor correction just um so you know the the listening audience for those who are interested in learning more about the institution more learning more about the program itself can you know do their due diligence and their research on the program online or you know through friends or family who may have attended the the university right so let's begin the first question we have is if you had known eight years ago that a huge pandemic would drastically change the entire healthcare system would you still have chosen medicine yes i you know what and i think that that is a great question because when i initially um decided that I was going to study medicine and study medicine abroad in Cuba, I had to start thinking about what it is that I wanted to study. And I remember being overseas in Paris at the time. I was um, learning French and I was there with my godmother who was a world traveler and had helped me prepare so much for for my studies in Cuba and she said okay well what kind you know what field of medicine are you interested in and I was just like I don't know and (laughs) I really didn't I really did not know um what field within medicine I was most interested in because all of it kind of excited me all of it um was very new but then at the same time there was an unknown factor because I knew at that time that I didn't know all of the different realms of medicine that exist. And there's, it's ever evolving and growing. So, you know, when you start medical school, maybe towards the end, you realize there's a few more specialties or subspecialties that you've never heard of. Um, But it's interesting because I told myself that Uh, And this is before I even started the program, but I was already officially um, admitted or accepted into the school. And I knew that I was going to be leaving in the matter of like a month. I remember saying, I I think I want to do emergency medicine. And I said, you know, I really want to be hands on. I want to know how to treat um, patients and my people 
in an emergency situation and I said mm-hmm. to myself okay I looked online and did it you know like google search and started reading up and I said okay I want to do emergency medicine with like a specialty um, in emergency preparedness and particularly disaster preparedness and management so wow. um, in my mind I was already kind of like um thinking ahead in the sense where you know you know in in I would say in Islam people who know scripture and you know you hear about a time of destruction and chaos and calamity and I was just like I want to be prepared for that Mm -hmm. I want to know what to do and how to respond and so that's where my mind was so I didn't know if it was going to happen, but you kind of want to just be prepared for whatever could happen. I And I felt like emergency medicine would do that. It would give me the foundational and uh, skills and training. So, so when you answer that question or when you ask me that question, it's just like, I was already thinking about it. (laughs) Right. Ironically, but I didn't know that it would be this. I really didn't know. But I in my mind I was thinking, if anything happens, I want to be ready. So Mm. yeah. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So with that being said, do you think that healthcare professionals were prepared for the pandemic? Not at all. No, I don't think uh I don't think a lot of medical professionals, particularly, I mean, not in the U.S., not in other parts of the world, no, I don't think mm-hmm. that um, they were prepared. I don't think we were prepared in mm-hmm. the sense, be- because sometimes you can train and try to get your mind prepared for something like this to happen but because it has never happened you know you don't necessarily put as much time and energy or thought into disaster kind of like preparedness or you know some sort of pestilence or or virus or things like that so I think that um I would honestly say that America and parts of Europe were the least prepared um, Mm -hmm. throughout the entire world. Um, And just in my experience with being in Cuba and living abroad and studying um, in Havana for over for seven years, Cuba has a very unique experience. they have a very unique lived experience, the Cuban people, in that they've been living under an embargo for over 50 years. So they've, I've studied in a country where the people have had to learn how to survive with little. They've had to learn how to make things happen with minimal resources. So in that sense, I can say that being in Cuba, I felt that we were we were more prepared mentally than a lot of the other parts of the world and and specifically kind of like comparing it to America because mm-hmm. we've been taught in an environment and in a condition where it's like we ha- we learned or we have learned how to be resourceful. You see what I'm saying? So it kind of mm-hmm. it has kind of prepared us mentally and physically to deal with situations like this. Even though we've never experienced this um or people in my lifetime have never kind of like really experienced um I would say a health crisis of this magnitude because of you know my studies and just me learning and growing in medicine and in a different culture and a different language and a different uh, government or political system I saw how they were able to respond quickly and and in a uniform fashion in order to try to preserve the health and wellness of their community so 
Yeah. When it first broke out and you were in Cuba, how did they respond initially? What were their steps? Okay, so initially, I would say, um, okay, so I have to think back at when it all first started. Um, so the initial thing or I don't want to say thing, but the Ministry of Health kind of like issued kind of like, uh, I think they call it the Mesa Redondo, which is like the round table. And so um, you would see different persons from the Ministry of Health, from um, from the Ministry of Health, from public health, different uh, physicians and doctors, epidemiologists and other key personnel coming to the table with coming to the table with government um, officials and talking about what's happening so it was a very um it was a very i think informative kind of approach because you have to understand that a lot of people are kind of hearing information from all over, right? The community, the population, um, and you don't know what's factual, what's true. So I think the initial response was we have to do a, a discussion and talk about what is going on, what do we know, and how we're going to respond, right? And I really mm-hmm. respected that because it was like every evening, I think it was at like 7 p.m., everyone is tuning in on the radio listening or on the television. And then they would send out kind of like notes or meeting minutes discussing everything that was going on and trying to inform um, the public as to what they know what steps they're taking and how we're going to proceed forward to ensure that you all are, you know, the citizens know what's going on, but also how we're responding on our government and, you know, from a health um, perspective, um, from a public health standpoint. So I remember when it initially happened, um, you know, students, that were in school, they were like, okay, we're, we're shutting down um, all of the schools, right? Like no one is allowed to, to, go to, to go to school. We don't want people kind of congregating in small enclosed <laughs> um, buildings or institutions. Another thing was they immediately implemented um, wearing a face mask. And, you know, we call them nasobucos, but, the thing was, is that Cuba didn't have, a, you know, like a already made supply center with masks available for the entire population. They didn't have that. So it literally went into uh, the government taking all of next year's, um, I think, fabric that they were going to be using to make the garments for surgeons and physicians and things like that and taking that material and saying we're turning this into a mass factory and it seemed like it happened like overnight type of thing Mm. because people were being issued masks that were made in Cuba from material that was initially going to be used for you know doctors and surgeons and things for the upcoming year they were making masks and so it was you know students meeting at a particular clinic in their local community and everybody um, getting a mask for free and so that was like one aspect another aspect was you know just the educating the public on okay this is how we're going to um, respond not only from a government standpoint, but on a local level and in our communities, this is something that we all have to be responsible for. So my safety and the safety of our community is also dependent on how we can adhere to um, the standards and and the kind of like the protocol that we put out there, which was, okay, we need to socially, we need to social distance. We need to wash our hands frequently and 
we need to always cover our nose and our mouth. And it literally, like, it was like seven o'clock at night, the conversation was had, the next morning it's implemented. Like it's, and it was treated like a law. And and mm. and that was, um, and I remember telling myself like, you know, what if, what, and I think I remember saying this to just a local Cuban, like, what if you don't have a mask like what if you don't have a mask what if you can't buy one you know and the neighbor was saying to me everyone has a mask like everyone has one and if you don't have a uh you know an N95 or you can make one like because everyone in Cuba has some sort of handkerchief or um, piece of cloth that they can use you know whether it's a bandana and you just tie it behind your you know you tie it behind your neck or something like that she was like you know we have it you know so it might not be up to the standard of what um of what we would like it to be but we have something that can be used as a barrier if you have a piece of clothing if you have you know a scarf or something all of these things can be used as a barrier so literally overnight everyone was wearing masks literally wow literally everyone and you couldn't step out your door without your neighbor saying hey where's your mask Mm. And so, and, and so that kind of speaks to the community kind of stepping up and the Cuban people stepping up and kind of being the reinforcers of this new protocol that, Hey, everyone has to wear a mask. I, I remember, you know, as a student physician, I'm coming out of my door just to throw away the trash. And they're like, where is your, and I'm like, Oh my God, where's my mask? <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, where's my mask? I just want to take the trash out, you know? And so it literally became, you're like, oh my God, I have, you know, I have a mask everywhere now, like in my purse, in my book bag, you know, around my neck. I'm, you know, you're ready at all times because literally when you step out the house, they wanted you to have a mask. And, and I remember also like, you know, any store that you went into overnight, it literally was overnight that whether you were going to the hospital, whether you were going to the bakery or getting inside of a kind of like public taxi, before you would get in, your hands would be sprayed with um, some sort of, you know, like disinfectant um, to, to, to clean your hands literally overnight. It was, it was crazy. I was, I was literally impressed. Right. And how was, how has the trans transition been from, from that to coming back to the States? Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's so different and relaxed here. Honestly, like I'm in DC and I'm in Washington, D.C., and, you know, a lot of things are still open. Um, You can still eat in different restaurants. They just kind of have um, a gap between you and the next person. So they say, oh, this table's available, this table isn't type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But you see people walking down the street or running, and they don't have a mask on. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's easy to forget to even wear a mask because you it's it's still not mandated. Yeah, it's not mandated. It's not mandated. And then, you know, you you see our president who doesn't wear a mask or if he does it's very right. rare and it's just kind of like brushed off as, as if it's nothing or it doesn't do anything. Um but here it's just it's so relaxed. Like it's so relaxed like there's been a couple times where where I'm running to the store and I'm like oh my god by the time I arrive to the store I'm sitting in the car I'm like did I bring my mask did I you know like did I bring it is right have it on me and but literally in Cuba it was like I'm putting on my mask before I even step out the door type of thing so it's a it's different it's definitely a different feeling so mm mm-hmm 
with the way this country is handling the pandemic, there have been lots of people talking about leaving the country and going elsewhere. Have you ever had thoughts of leaving? <laughs> <laughs> um, during the pandemic, you know what? I'm going to be honest. Um, I did not know that a lot of people had thoughts about leaving during the pandemic. Um, however, I have heard of maybe one or two people who have left and went to the to the islands and things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest. I recently took a trip to St. Lucia. And this is literally within like the last two weeks. I took a trip to St. Lucia. And um, I could see why people have opted to leave during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's... <sighs> It's interesting because when I got on my flight, I realized that there were, I was probably one of four black people on this flight to St. Lucia. Now, remember, we're talking about the islands, the Caribbean, the West Indies. We're talking 85 degree weather, rice and peas and plantain and, you know, going to Mm -hmm. literally a place that I would say is like a heaven because and I this was my first time going there and I realized that there are some people who are quarantining in the islands you see what I'm saying and and that's kind of like the picture that I'm trying to you know illustrate for you that there are people (laughs) and many of them are not black from what I could see just on my Mm -hmm. you know flight to the islands I was one of four, and I think two of them were native um, uh, St. Lucian, you know, citizen. But right, right. there was literally everyone was going on kind of like vacation to quarantine in the sun, in 85 degree weather on the ocean, right on the beach, you know, where they mm-hmm. could eat good and be in an environment that was pretty much COVID free. And the reason why I can say that is because, you know, St. Lucian, I'm sure there's a lot of other countries that have done this as well. You can't go to this country without being COVID tested, not only the rapid test, but getting the PCR tests and getting your results back negative within a few days of you traveling. And then when you get into the country, they're taking your temperature maybe three or four times before you even get to customs and they're doing a health inspection and if you have COVID symptoms or if you appear that you have um, any of the signs and symptoms related to COVID you're getting an immediate COVID test before you even make it into customs so they're trying to Mm. say oh you can come and you can quarantine here and um, you can quarantine in the islands in the Caribbean but you need to be COVID free so as long as you're as long as you're negative for COVID you don't have anything that shows that you have any symptoms of any you know any of the any of the virus then you can quarantine here and literally they put you up in like a resort where you you know all-inclusive resort you can eat you can drink you can be on the on the beach and enjoy yourself during the during a pandemic. I know that's crazy, but it, it, but wow. I know it's crazy, but people are doing it. So while some people are suffering in their small flats in New York City, or you know, feel like they're like in the tiniest apartment in LA or whatever, or suffering in the cold of Chicago, there are people that mm-hmm. are really using this time to just relax and and work wow. remotely <laughs> <laughs> my goodness mm-hmm. well that, that leads to the next question why did you choose elam over a medical education in the mm, states that is a great question um i like to say usually that to be honest i feel like elam chose me and medicine mm-hmm kind of chose me because I didn't always think that I was going to be a physician that wasn't even that was 
literally like furthest from my mind. I had the idea of being a teacher. Same. Yes. Wow. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to be a teacher so bad. Like that was the goal. And even from I realized when I was in the second grade that I wanted to be a teacher and the the vision and the idea evolved. And when I went away to UCLA, I was like, I'm going to be a teacher. This is what I want to do. And I was positioning myself to become an educator. So um, why Elam? You know, honestly, I was talking to my cousin who I ended up going to medical school with and we ended up graduating together. Um, I was talking to her about the program because she was interested in becoming a physician. And she visited um, Elam. She visited the campus and she had just come back and she was saying, oh man, I don't know if I could do it. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was just like, you know, I just think it's going to be too different from what I'm used to. You know, I don't think that um, it is going to, you know, like we're, we're used to our, our creature comforts and what we're, and you know, just like the luxury of how we live, you know, of living in a first Mm -hmm. world country. And so she was explaining to me, Oh, I don't think I could do it. And I was really kind of like, unintentionally selling the program to her saying like are you serious like oh my goodness the history behind the program and the fact that you'll have friends from all over the world who are physicians and you'll have an opportunity to learn another language and become fluent and you have the opportunity to learn medicine from such a revolutionary perspective and on top of all of that you would receive a full scholarship you know and you don't have to pay to go to school like you would be debt free a debt free physician like are you serious you know (laughs) and I was just like this is an opportunity of a lifetime this will change your life you change your family's life you know and think of the impact it'll have on our community like it was that was my excitement for the program and so I remember kind of wrapping up that conversation. It was her and my sister that were on the phone because both of them had the desire to be physicians. And I said, if I had an opportunity like that, I would take it, right? And Mm -hmm. so my cousin came back um, to me a a couple weeks later and she just said, you remember when you said if you had an opportunity like that, you would take it? And I said, yeah, I remember. And she said, okay, well, you know, apply. And I was like, huh and she was like no like you said if you had the opportunity you know to do it you would so apply and I was just like she was like you know we can apply together and I was like okay because at that point I felt like you know as we say like oh she was she was testing my G like she was trying to see if Mm -hmm. I was really about what I said and so that has probably taught me like say what you mean, mean what you say, and <laughs> and be very specific because what I was really trying to tell her was, you know, if I wanted to be a, a physician, I would not pass up an opportunity based off of um fear of the unknown or just the challenge of being challenged, you know? And so um I was just like, yeah, okay, sure, you know, I'll apply and I really didn't think that I was going to get in. I wasn't, you know, pre-med in undergrad. I was the student who studied math and was one of those students who was like, if the course sounded exciting, I would take it. So, you know, there were times when I did take engineering or I had to take, you know, a computer coding class or, you know, I was one of those students where it was like, oh my God, that sounds so good. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to take it, <laughs> I'm right. that, you know, and so I applied, I submitted all my documents and I got in and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to med school. And I, and I was so right. kind of like unsure of, 
how people would feel about me getting accepted into med school that I really didn't even tell any, anyone that I had got accepted and I'm going away to med school because I was just like, oh my God, what are they going to say? <laughs> They're going to be like, you were right. pre-med. I don't remember you in all my pre-med courses or I don't remember you <laughs> struggle with me. So right um so yeah that was that was pretty interesting it was in- <laughs> so when you ask the question how did I choose a mom how did I choose medicine I really really feel like you know it chose, it chose you. it was like divine intervention because I like I said I had no idea you know from my freshman all the way up to like my junior year of college that I was about to go into medicine literally right after graduation so that's very interesting what was the first year like when you first got there (laughs) talk about that it was challenging (laughs) no seriously it was like super challenging Mm -hmm. like I said I wasn't pre-med so I had to kind of fill a few gaps I had never ever um, taken um, a Spanish course so I didn't know any Spanish going into the program. So it felt like me playing catch up the first year. It was like, I have to learn Spanish because all of the courses are in Spanish, but I've never spoken any Spanish. And like I said, I was in Paris literally a few weeks before I had moved to Cuba. So I spoke French and I right. spoke English and I felt like, okay, um, maybe I'll, you know, communicate um, in in French if they don't understand my English. And I remember my cousin kind of tapping me. I was like, yo, they don't speak that language. And I was like, well, these are the only <laughs> two that I know. You know, like, <laughs> these are the only right. two that I know. So I was just like, I don't know what else, you know. And I remember kind of being on the plane and downloading, um, that um Rosetta Stone or something I was trying to download Rosetta Stone and you know maybe got maybe 10 or 20 minutes into it and then I was like in Cuba so it was (laughs) so I didn't know anything I was (laughs) like oh my goodness so it was hard it was challenging academically for sure um, it was mm-hmm. a little challenging mentally and emotionally because I lost um, someone close to me um, within my first year. I lost my godmother. And, you know, mm-hmm. it was, but it was also um, a blessing and something that I, I know I'll never forget. And I'm sure that there are moments that I'm going to think about. Um, in the future and be like man I remember you know x y and z while I was in Cuba but you know just the people that I met I remember in my class I had students from the Solomon Islands from Guinea from Cameroon um, from different parts of uh, the islands like literally I remember speaking to a few of my classmates initially in French when I first got there um, because their first language was French. So, uh, and when when you originally start the program, you're with international students. So I had met people from um, just just so many countries from Angola to South Africa from Ghana, Togo, Benin from uh, Mali from Chad, from Sahara it was just like wow the cool part was like I am in medical school and everybody's black (laughs) right that's the best part (laughs) or every like literally like everybody was melanated or, or a person of color I you know right it, that part was like oh my god because I didn't go to an HBCU I went to a PWI um, right so oh, I went yeah, to a right. PWI I was at UCLA so to transition and go to medical school with so many 
black students from around the world who spoke different languages, had different cultures, was introducing us to their cuisine and the way they cook and their music and the way that they dance. It was like, wow, this is actually pretty cool. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. So tell us, how, how was the dormitory life? How was the food, the academics? I know you spoke a little mm-hmm. bit about the academics, but if you could read about oh, the food and the well, dormitory. You know, okay, so I am born and raised Muslim. And so I right. do not eat pork or any of their byproducts. So... Mm-hmm. Living abroad in Cuba definitely was a struggle because Cuban people eat pork and they put pork in everything, it seemed like. I mean, it was one mm-hmm. time I remember Rakai and I, that's my cousin who graduated medical school with me, we um, went to a restaurant and she was eating some bread and... <laughs> And I remember, I was like, oh my God, it's like a cinnamon roll. And she was like, what is that? And I was like, I think it's, you know, cinnamon bun or something. And then we found out that it was like bits <laughs> of like pork in the bread. And she was like, who puts pork in bread? Like, <laughs> Right. So, the funny thing is, um, oh my God. Oof, the food. Okay. That was a struggle. That was a real struggle. Most people, especially the Americans who study in Cuba, would lose weight. So I think the most I lost was probably about 20 pounds. But you had people losing. I think I lost between like 15 and 20 pounds when I was living in Cuba. I think my cousin lost like 60 pounds. Like it was... It was hard because there's no 7-Eleven or Walgreens or even just just like fast food restaurants. Like that does not exist in Cuba. So our diet was like the typical Cuban diet. It was rice. Big. uh, You would have white rice, black beans maybe some chicken or some fish plantains or a fried egg and then maybe you'd have like a little salad or some fruit and that was like literally what we ate for years (laughs) for years of course you know you would get like an occasional pizza but for the most part that was it yeah like it was you know some soup or something like that so that was that was a struggle a lot of us would literally lose weight I was talking to my sister about it yesterday and she was like man you lost so much weight while you were in Cuba and she visited me and said I did not she said man I brought you food you know to bring because you know usually I would say all the time while I was living in Cuba you can come visit I don't mind just make sure you bring a care package with some goodies in there and my sister came for my 29th birthday and she's brought some food and she said that she was so hungry in the middle of the night that she ended up eating some of my food and she felt so bad but she was like I was so hungry I was like she was like me we went to look for some food it was everything was closed there was no food we couldn't find anything you know late at night you get the and she was just like mm-hmm. we had uh we had paid somebody to kind of like show us around and when he took us to some place all there was was pork so we couldn't eat she was like and I'm so sorry but I ended up eating your food and I was just like <laughs> she was like I felt horrible <laughs> because I knew you were gonna be there for a couple more months but uh, but she was like I felt like I was starving <laughs> <laughs> So what was your last year like? What what was the day-to-day oh, experience okay. of the so last, last year? year? Um last my last year was pretty um typical of like a first year intern. So my last year of my program mm-hmm. is an intern year. So intern year you're working in the hospital, you're seeing patients every day, you're responsible for um, updating their charts. You're responsible for ordering their labs and um, 
you know, doing treatment plans and differential diagnosis, all of that. So that was my last year. It was literally me working in the hospital every single day, um, except maybe one day a week. I think we had off either Saturday or Sunday, not both days. And then we would work 24 hour shifts every, sometimes every three or every five days. It depended, uh, it really depended on um, just how we were dealing with COVID at that time. But it was, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was work. (laughs) It was just work, it was just work, work, work. Whether we were, you know, and we would, kind of like rotate through pediatrics internal medicine surgery OB-GYN um and we were just literally like in the hospital every day and you know you start to you start to really feel like a physician you really do you really do and you you establish a bond with some of the nursing staff you establish a bond with um the cleaning crew which surprisingly, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the axillary or, you know, um, the axillary, the health allies are so important to the functioning of a hospital. It is like the golden rule is you have to treat everyone with the utmost respect, um, Regardless if they hold the title of doctor or nurse, all of those, everyone who works in a hospital is essential. And cannot forget that. I don't care if you're Mm -hmm. a a radiology tech or if you are the cleaning crew, you cannot treat patients effectively without every person that works in the hospital doing their part. Even the people that, you know, just go and get the gurneys in the middle of a... Uh, you know, in the middle of a situation where you someone comes in in the ED or in the emergency room, like everyone is important because right. a second or a minute delay could literally cost you. Um, it can cost the patient their life. So, yeah. Mm. Wow. So I'm just gonna ask you a few more okay, questions, and then we're gonna wrap it up. <laughs> So would you recommend students to study medicine abroad, whether it be Cuba or Poland or anywhere? Would you recommend that students study Um, medicine abroad? I would, but I think that for me, it's not for everyone. And I'm just going to be honest. You know, would I recommend it? Yes, but I also recommend it to a certain type of student, you know, because studying abroad literally... can only be beneficial to those who really desire to learn abroad, to learn a different system or culture of medicine, right? Because the way that um, Colombia or Venezuela or Cuba or even the UK, for example, teaches medicine may be very different from the way that we are taught medicine in America, right? So I don't have a real perspective on how medicine is taught in America because I did not go to medical school in America. I don't have that lived experience, right? But so for a person who respects um, the thoughts and the thinking of other nations, I would definitely say explore your opportunity to study medicine abroad, right? But if you come from a mindset of America is superior, we have all the answers and we are the best and in the forefront and other nations don't really contribute in a way that can um, advance medicine forward, then you would go abroad and you would feel like what you're learning is inferior. You see what I'm saying? And so you don't really have a respect, a love and a passion or a commitment um, to what you're studying because you don't really value it. So it depends, I believe, on your value system. And I've always believed that, you know, there you have to seek knowledge everywhere. And that I'm not to I'm not gonna say that America doesn't have or I'm not gonna say that America has all the answers. You know, I really don't believe that. I think that there's value in 
added perspective, added experience and and the culture and how people do things. So I feel like because of that, it'll add variety within um, the U.S. medical system, right? So I don't intend to be a physician um, who studies and practices medicine in the U.S. to be just like every other U.S. trained physician because I'm not, you know. And I think the the right. that adds that adds depth, that adds variety, that adds um, a different thought process, which is which is very necessary, you know. Because if everyone has the exact same opinion and thoughts, how are things? challenged how do how do we grow and evolve and become better you know so um yes I would recommend for people to explore studying abroad but you have to know your support system and you have to also know what you are able to uh withstand because studying abroad isn't an easy task especially if you're going to a country where you have to learn another language that's an added challenge if you don't want to learn another language then of course that wipes out any country that isn't english speaking um if you um feel like you don't have a strong enough support system to live abroad and maybe not see your family for weeks or months on end and sometimes even years it just depends on you know your individual finances for example I know students who studied in Cuba who didn't go home for years or some didn't go home until they finished the program so can you sacrifice being away from your family and your friends um, and your support system? Are you willing to create a new support system that are individuals that are your same age or from a different community? So I think it really depends on the person because the worst thing that you can do is go somewhere and hate it and hate the experience and hate that you went there or you know whether you're in medical school in in the U.S. or the U.K. or in Cuba you want to enjoy the experience because that's how you will get the most out of it so <laughs> true so you I love it <laughs> so I love it right <laughs> so I know that some students um have studied for the step one while they were in medical school and you know they went that route so tell us why did you wait until afterwards to well for step one I began studying for um step one while I was actually in medical school and I had um started um getting myself prepared to take the exam and registered and all of that and then I dealt with the sudden loss of my father and so my father passed away and I still tried to kind of stick out studying and you know but mentally I just wasn't in a good space and instead of taking just the time off that I really felt like I desperately needed I just pushed forward and continued to um, just grind out school and so I had to kind of make a decision like okay am I going to maybe take a year off and you know study for my exams and get those done or am I just going to continue to push through school and I really just wanted to take some time off and not do anything I just was like I just want to kind of grieve and find myself and recenter myself and instead of really doing that I kind of just was like you know what I'm just going to finish up school and be done with this particular aspect so what I ended up that so that's what I ended up doing so I had made the decision like you know what I'm not gonna force myself or rush myself to take the exam prematurely if I don't really feel ready and also I feel like you have to be in a good mental space you have to be in a good frame of mind because this exam is very intimidating um and it's just kind of like with the MCAT or the LSAT and you know you really have to be in the in the right headspace for sure for sure and I think that's what I've heard a lot of colleagues 
even from like the University of Chicago and you know other prestigious universities where students are it's not about mm-hmm. not being intelligent or not being disciplined but think about all of the students who were or are in medical school and they're a person of color and they're one thing about just the finances of paying for this medical degree but then they're also looking on television or looking outside their doors or experiencing the loss of black life and the assassination and the murder of of so many of their people that look like their brothers or their cousins and Mm -hmm. and then on top of that dealing with the pandemic so you know some i think that this last year it had there's so many dynamics to what students of color are dealing with besides the fact that we're dealing with oh covid and um a pandemic on our hands but we're thinking about how it disproportionately has affected black people and then you add the fact that there's been just mass incarceration of black youth there's been the mass slaughtering of black people in the streets by the hands of um police but also gang violence and just you know just some of the problems that we're dealing with in our community and then the financial burden like a lot of um i and then this is just my personal opinion but i think a lot of black youth who pursue higher education and just individuals in general black youth i feel we we don't feel as though we have the luxury to just focus on ourselves we're always thinking about right our families per, more um, specifically our parents and being able to either help them or not be a burden to them um and we are thinking about you know how do i help mom and dad or you know how do i not incur this huge bill that they can't afford so it's just it's so many things that are pulling on us while we're in pursuit to succeed that i think a lot of um people especially people of color are you know are challenged with the exams where we just rise to the occasion you know so Mm -hmm. so um for me I just was like you know let me get through school let me get through um finishing my medical degree and then I will sit down focus and take these boards and get into residency (laughs) (laughs) wow that was this was a wonderful interview and I am so sorry to hear about your father But thank you so, so much for doing this interview no today. No problem. I really enjoy it and I love your questions. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and we hope to hear from you soon, Dr. Farrakhan. No. And we wish you the best of luck on your step one, step two residency. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm in the midst of studying. It's going great. So <laughs> now it's just time to get it done. So hopefully you all will, um, you know, just... Uh, see me in someone's hospital <laughs> in the <Right>. near <laughs> thank you for listening to Melanin in Healthcare for more education representation and inspiration stay tuned for episode number 5